0: All right. uh, Welcome everybody to a new podcast episode. Today I have on Brian. Is it Borstein or Borstein? Borstein. I think probably originally it was
1: Borstein, but in America, it's Borstein.
0: Yeah. Do you have some like um, Scandinavian upbringing or something?
1: So I'm actually half Hungarian. um, No way. I'm Hungarian as
0: well. So yeah, I'm half Hungarian, a quarter Ukrainian and a quarter Polish. Wow. Okay, cool. So your, your family just moved to America and you were born there or?
1: Yeah. So my, I'm, I'm second, third, I guess, second or third generation. My parents were born here, but their parents were not. So my grandparents
0: were born over in Europe. Oh, awesome. Do you speak any Hungarian? No, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, don't, don't start learning it. It's uh, a pain in the ass from what I've heard. Um, (laughs) So yeah, man, how are you doing today? Glad to have you on. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. You know, I've been a huge fan of the work that you do and, you know, the way
1: that you oh. conduct yourself on podcasts. So I'm very honored to be here. Um, cool. Everything is every, everything's good in my world, man. Just hit some legs this morning and um,
0: finished just in time to, to get on here with you. So uh, so life's good. How about yourself? Yeah, uh, similar stuff here. Feeling a little bit under the weather. So, um, so yesterday I made this uh, egg white fluff thing. Um, so I didn't have a casein protein, which is kind of the standard ingredient for protein fluffs, and honestly, it turned out amazing. Like, in fact, I I started doubting about is or like are the calories really as low as what the internet claims about egg whites? Because it was like the internet says that it's like 50 calories per 100 grams or something, and I made this like 350 gram thing, and I whipped it up, added some xanthan gum. And it was amazing and was super fluffy. But, uh, and I tried, what do you say, like uh, pasteurizing the eggs beforehand, but I don't know how complete that was. And since I'm feeling a little bit under the weather, of course, it <laughs> comes into my head like, did I just get salmonella? Um, so fingers crossed that I didn't. But yeah, uh,
1: I hope you're all right, brother. I mean, the chances of getting salmonella, I think, are, are relatively low. Like the guys in the 70s used to chug like full shakes with full eggs in them, you know?
0: Yeah. And from what I've read, even if I did get it, it's not usually it's not like you don't have to die from it or something where you don't even have to be admitted to a hospital. So um, anyway, fingers crossed. And maybe I just slept badly. And uh, that's why mm. I feel under the weather. Um, but anyway, so yeah, ma'am. So let's give a little bit of an intro on you. So I am somewhat familiar with your background. But uh, can you just give a, like a brief overview of like, um, what you do, how, it ca- how you came about, you know, doing all of that and all that good stuff.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, I do online coaching, um, like, like I guess a lot of us. I uh, have an interesting background though, in that I started training in 97 uh, when I was 15 years old for basketball in high school. And that was really the main focus of my training for a while. And then I went to college, ate a bunch of food, drank alcohol, continued training. Um, but there's some interesting stories there. And then after that, um, fell into CrossFit, owned a CrossFit gym from 2010 through, I guess I still own a piece of it, but I'm not really involved in it. And, um, competed in CrossFit and kind of came out the other side of that in 2015, 2016 and fell kind of into the evidence-based, um, hypertrophy strength community, um, which is, is interesting because it's very similar to kind of the way that I got my start training, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s. But now, 15 years later, the knowledge is so much better. And being able to follow evidence is something that you really couldn't even do. Like you could barely even go down that rabbit hole in the late 90s. Um, most of the knowledge I got was from like message boards. And um, Paul Carter was actually a guy who, who yeah. influenced me a lot back in the late 90s. We were on a message board called Power and Bulk. And, uh, so he was a guy that kind of was in my ear telling me to get strong and stop program hopping all the time and, and all that stuff when I was just like a 15, 16 year old. So, um, yeah, now I'm here, do some online coaching and, um, just, you know, really happy that I've been able to make a, a life out of
0: working in this industry. So yeah, so that, that's a pretty cool background you have. Um, so you're doing online coaching. What what would you say is your primary clientele? Who do you work with mostly?
1: I, I honestly work mostly with women. Um, and I have two companies. Um, I started Evolved Training Systems in 2000, early 2017. And that's kind of my baby. That's where I'm I own the whole thing. So I'm able to program exactly how I want to program. I have individual clients as well as general programs there, like $29 a month, just kind of basic hypertrophy program. Um, And then in 2018, I started another company with uh, a girl who I was actually coaching one on one at the time. And we, the company is called Paragon Training Methods, and her target audience is primarily female, and um, primarily, even to, to, to set set that down a little bit more, it's females with hormonal issues, um, and most of that results from excessive glycolytic work within the CrossFit space or functional fitness. So a lot of them, um, you know, struggle with you know they don't get their period. Um, they have Hashimoto's or other autoimmune diseases. They have thyroid problems, um, a whole bunch of like cortisol imbalances, estrogen and testosterone and stuff like that. So what we essentially did was take kind of hypertrophy principles, which are, you know, a lot friendlier to hormones than doing CrossFit workouts. Um, And then alongside that, you know, you take CrossFit and CrossFit is a skill. So it's not just a matter of, you know, I'm going to work out for my hour or 75 minutes, five days a week, because in that way, it might be even, you know, a little healthier. But these people that are, that are super in deep in the CrossFit world are training three, four times a day for an hour to two hours each time. And um, their bodies just aren't recovering from it anymore. Um, so Hmm. they kind of find Lori, who's my business partner. And then, uh, Lori kind of gets them into our funnel, into our network. And I end up finding myself working very closely with, with these women. Um, I would say our program probably has about 10% males and 90%
0: women right now. Yeah. Okay. That's pretty cool. So that's, that's how you get basically all your clients through that company with, with her.
1: Yeah. So the programming I do with her is a general program. It's not, um, individual coaching. So any individual work that I do is through my personal brand. And then the stuff with her is a general program. We have like a physique style program that's more hypertrophy. And then we do, uh, like a kind of a hybrid program between CrossFit and bodybuilding for people that just like need to scratch that itch and they can't like fully separate
0: from the CrossFit world. So we have a program for them as well. Cool. And then, and how did you, like, how did that come about that you're mainly working with females? It was mostly
1: through her, honestly. Um, mm-hmm. like the, the program that I run on my own evolved, um, it's, it's more male dominant and then her program is more female dominant. And then that program is, is larger because she's a more influential figure than I am, uh, in the online world. So, mm-hmm. um, so most of the clients that come into that program are from her.
0: Uh-huh. Gotcha. Yeah. It's, it's interesting what people end up uh, gravitating to and and how like, honestly, like a recent thought that I had, I don't know if you ever had this thought yourself, but I thought of setting like a lower age limit for my coaching. And um, like maybe 25 would be a good one. And that's mainly because I don't know if you had the same experience, but I just find that working with like under 25 guys is just so much harder. And main, like mainly because everything is just so emotional. Like everything is like so impulsive. Like when I work together with like a thirty-something-year-old guy, um, you know, uh, they ask me a question, and it's like, okay, I'm wondering about this and this, or I have this problem. Cool, we like get into solving it. But when I'm working together with someone like say 22 or something, I get a question, and it's like, why is it like this? Like this doesn't make sense to me. This is not <laughs> what I read so far. Like I demand an explanation. It's it it has like that kind of tone. And it's like, man, like each time I open up the messages, I'm like, man, well, what's coming this time? So, and I'm not trying to talk shit on them. You know, like I recognize myself in them when I was, I had coaching with Menno, so Hanselmans when I was 23. And I was exactly like that. Like I opened up our email thread in retrospect, it was like 52 emails sent in 30 days. And like a lot of them were like this. So uh, but anyway, did you have a similar experience there? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I can even use
1: myself as an example, like you did. Um, like Paul Carter used to get angry with me online, um, because like, I constantly wanted the new shiny object, or I wanted to know why You know doing what he said was going to be better than not doing the shiny object Mm -hmm. um and so it was just this the constant process of a not being deliberate with the way that i think about things and like you said impulsive i think was the right word because I, i he's like okay you know pick these six compound lifts and get really strong on them and when you reach these certain strength numbers you know then you can consider adding in isolations or doing this or doing that or trying that program or whatever number of things it was and I just was like, but why should I just concentrate on these like six basic movements when there's all these other movements out there? And like at the time, you know, muscle magazines were a really big thing. And I was kind of obsessed with following Bill Phillips at the time. Do you know who that is? No. Um, he ran a transformation challenge in the late 90s called Body for Life. Um, oh,
0: yeah, yeah, of course.
1: I heard from of that. EAS Supplement Company. Um, so I was kind of obsessed with him and he had a magazine out called Muscle Media 2000. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure Dave McConey probably is laughing cause he, he probably knows exactly what I'm talking about too. But, um, but these were the things like I would look at this and I'd be like, okay, well, these guys are doing, you know, 10, 8, 6, 4 of bench press, superset it with flies. And why are you telling me that I need to just do like bench press and bent over rows and deadlifts and squats, you know? So I was like questioning everything um and I didn't realize like I wanted everything now because it's such a smaller percentage of our total right like when you're 16 years old or 23 or whatever it is one year is like 5% of your life or more yeah. but now at almost 40 years old one year is is like nothing like a year flies by and I look back and I'm like where the hell did that year go you know so um I think that that process of of thinking is is part of the reason for that
0: yeah Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. Like in the beginning, everything just seemed so much more like it has had a larger consequence than it really did. And uh, you're in this rush to achieve your dream physique as fast as possible. And then once you've been doing it for over 10 years, you kind of realize that, you know, like this is actually a really fun process, like figuring things out as you go, like what can I achieve in this upcoming few months? Like you're thinking about training blocks and not just this, like, okay, like, am i am i gonna get to that whatever 23 ffmi by the end of the year but um, earlier on it just seemed so much more serious um all right so so let's talk about your um so the pictures that you have on instagram and like your profile picture like they look really good is would you say that's like more or less the condition that you maintain like year-round that's
1: an interesting question um the it probably needs a little bit more explanation. So no, I don't, I don't maintain that year round. That's those pictures uh were from the most recent cut that I did where I got down to about 185. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would say up until I did that cut, I spent the last four years prior to that kind of oscillating between 195 and 205. Mm -hmm. Um, So it would be kind of like a process of slowly working my way up from 195 over the course of many months until I got to 205, 206, 207, something that, you know, just kind of felt a little fluffy and I wasn't really happy with the appearance anymore. And then I just do like a, a quick mini cut. It really didn't take long, like four to five weeks drop a bunch of glycogen, and then drop some actual fat. And before I knew it, I felt like I was back at 195 again. And then I would just kind of spend the next number of months getting back up to 205. So it wasn't until recently, um, it was June of 2020 that I started the, the cut that took me down to
0: 185. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so you got down there. And so I will just cut in some pictures for everybody to see. But you got down there. And then what did you do?
1: Uh, I hung out there and had a photo shoot. I had two photo shoots, one with my business partners in Austin, Texas, and then another one a week later here in Colorado where I live. And uh, then I kind of took a week and just ate whatever I want. Didn't really think about it and found myself at 189 after that. So I'm guessing it was probably mostly like like glycogen and water retention stuff like that. But, um, found myself at about 189. And then since that week after, um, that would have been early October, I've just been doing my slow build thing. And I'm now this morning at about 194, I guess, 88 kilos. And, um, I'm kind of thinking that, what I was doing from 195 to 205, I now kind of want to do from like 195 to 185. So Mm. flip that 10 pounds and now stay a little bit more on the leaner side. Um, Cause I was really surprised to be honest. I thought that 185 was going to be like this terrible feeling for me and that my sleep was going to be off and that I was just going to have so much food focus and have no energy, not want to work out and like all these different things. And to be honest, like I told you this in private message, but I almost felt like it was easier to live at 185 than at 205 um, because it's just easier to move a smaller body through space each day. Like I found myself uh, having more energy when I would go for walks, you know, at 205, my walks would be like lumbering. I'd take a step and it would be like, Every step felt like hard kind of, you know? Um Mm -hmm. and at 185 I take steps and they're light and and I'm smiling and I'm happy and I'm just like hearing the birds sing and the whole the whole thing. Like it just it it just felt better to be smaller and I I I totally don't think that that's the case as I would continue to get smaller than that. But um, I think, you know, 185 is that point where I'm still okay, like hormonally and everything feels good.
0: Right. So, so 185 is, is something that is like very lean for, for you. Uh, How tall are you?
1: Uh, almost five ten
0: okay yeah all right so you have a definitely a above average muscularity which we uh, talked a b- bit about on our uh, podcast actually when is our podcast coming out <laughs> I was gonna ask you uh, yeah, yeah
1: probably the next week we uh we had some some editing issues trying to get all four of us uh, cool. worked out so I think next week cool
0: yeah for everybody to know um we did a podcast on uh, Brian's podcast with Aaron. Uh, straker 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 yeah. yeah yeah uh so yeah that should be fun so um yeah so i think you sent me and uh dave mcconey a picture some time ago which was a uh, kind of a screenshot of a story that you posted on instagram and that was about how this cut that you did to 185 was was the easiest cut that you've ever done or you've done in a long time um So from that, I'm assuming that you did cuts before to roughly that body fat percentage and it was much harder.
1: Yes, Um, it's actually a a kind of funny story in retrospect, but not so much in the moment. So um, in 2014, my business partner and I in the CrossFit gym decided that we wanted to start like a bodybuilding style physique program as like an offshoot in the CrossFit space. We had two locations at the time, so we were going to make one location like purely CrossFit and then use this other smaller location for our like bodybuilding program. And we had the idea that I should do a men's physique competition so that we could kind of have me be this model of this program and have these like really cool pictures and a success story and all this stuff. I didn't know anything at the time about natural versus enhanced. Mm -hmm. Um, like literally I didn't even, I didn't even know there was a difference in the way that you prep. I just thought like you either know how to prep or you don't know how to prep. Mm -hmm. Um, So I prepped myself up until six weeks out and six weeks out, I found myself at about 190 pounds and, uh, overall I felt pretty good and I, uh, didn't know where to go from there or how to get, I didn't know. I, I needed someone to assess my physique and I needed someone to tell me what I needed to do in peak week and all these different things. So I went to the local bodybuilding gym in San Diego where I lived at the time and just hired the local IFBB pro that was coaching people there. And, um, he just destroyed me. I I don't really know how else to say it. Basically my, my program for the final six weeks was lift five to six days a week for about an hour, uh, walk an hour every day, seven days a week and then do hit style like glycolytic cardio for 20 to 30 minutes, Four to five times a week. Meh. And on top of that, he cut my calories initially. He cut them the first day to 2,300. And then by the end, we were at like 2,100 or 2,000 or something like that. And this was, you know, on top of all that activity that I was doing and all that movement. So I ended up getting down to uh, 179 the day before mm-hmm. the show. And then we ate up into it. And I think I was 180 or 181 on stage. And, um, I felt so awful afterwards, man. It was like only adrenaline got me there. And then the moment that it was over, I was, I just died. Like we, um, we had a new gym at the time and we needed to paint the upstairs and it was literally 14 steps to get from the bottom level to the top level. And it was the day after the show. And I walk into the gym and I like huff and puff my way just to get to the stairs. And then I look up at them and I'm like, uh, uh, (laughs) And I like had to sit down for a second and like put my head in my hands. And like, then I finally got the energy to like, get to the top of the stairs, you know? Um, so I didn't end up working out for 10 days. I just like, couldn't even imagine it. I couldn't imagine working out. Damn. And then when I did, I was like, okay, let's see what I can squat. And uh, prior to peaking for this, this prep, I had squatted a 400 single, uh, 405 single. And I put 225 on the bar after warming up and I got it three times And it was probably just as much like a mental failure as it was a physical failure, but it doesn't really matter. I didn't even try the fourth rep. I did three reps and I was like, fuck this. And I racked the bar and I was like, I'm not working out for another five days. And I went, um, so I literally didn't work out for two weeks. And then, uh, once I did start working out again, I, I had no motivation to CrossFit. I didn't want to do hard hypertrophy work or anything like that. So I literally trained full body twice a week and I did that for six months before I felt better. So the whole thing took until December, 2015, before I was like
0: feeling back to myself again. Wow. I mean, it's weird listening to that because like that feeling is, is familiar to me, although I didn't push myself quite to that level as you, but When I got really lean the last time, I also felt like that I had a lot of these like this, like, I I just, I just cannot do it never again. I had a lot of those types of moments. Um, And it's, and it's weird, because like, what you're describing, what you actually did, like does not actually sound that like horrible, like just on paper, like, you know, 232100 calories in contest shape many 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 people are on much lower calories than that an hour of walking a day i mean you know like a lot of people just walk around to 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 do the groceries and to go to work and whatever and um yeah the hits yeah four or five days a week 20 30 minutes it's rough i would hate to do that but i mean this is still not doesn't sound that brutal but from what you're saying for you it was really hard on your body so are you like um a higher energy expenditure kind of guy, so like your calories should be higher even when you're getting to contest shape. Yeah, I mean, I would think so. Like that's the leanest that I've been as an adult.
1: Um, so I've never like gone below what that 179 was. Um, like as you know, I, you know, I've been hanging out at 205 for for most of my adult life. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I would say in general, I I do tend to to run on a bit higher calories. I also tend to be pretty active and fidgety in general. Um, I drink a ton of water, so I'm always getting up like going to the bathroom and then I'll go to the bathroom and I'll, I have two kids. So I'm chasing like a three-year-old and a one-year-old around all the time. Mm. Um, we, we go for walks two to three times a day just because they need to get outside. Um, so I, I do have like a relatively high activity level. I think without even having to try, I get between nine and 12,000 steps most days. Um, But like, I haven't done cardio since I quit CrossFit, like 2017, really 16, maybe I haven't done any like standardized cardio, I just walk. Um, So I think ultimately, part of the reason that maybe I felt so terrible at the end of all that was obviously all the stuff that, that happened leading up to it. but he also prepped me in that final week as if I was enhanced. And I obviously didn't know that at the time either. Like we cut sodium, we cut water, we cut carbohydrates. No. And we did that for the entire week leading up until Friday when he looked at me and he goes, okay, you look good. Let's load some carbs tonight. And then I got like 200 carbs the day before the show or something like
0: that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, and that, that explains a lot more actually, because like, yeah cutting carbs and and sodium and whatever it's 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 never pleasant but like when you're that lean and like even a small like fluctuation in your macronutrient intake can actually like produce a pretty substantial difference in how you feel um but anyway so so like that was your horrific uh, experience with getting lean and then what was the difference now when you got to like 185?
1: Yeah, exactly. So I followed a lot of the evidence-based advice that, you know, you put out and that, you know, 3DMJ and, and all those guys put out. So, um I, uh, I started tracking again. I kind of go through these periods off and on where I track and I don't track and I track and I don't track. Um, I think I, I've, I calculated that I've been tracking for 14 of my 23 years lifting or something like that. So, so enough years of tracking that I think I'm okay, not tracking, uh, most of the time. But, um, one thing I did was I did start tracking again and, um, and I started weighing myself daily. So initially, you know that that when when you start the diet, the first thing that happens is the glycogen and the water drop off. So I dropped from like 205 to 200 or 199 probably like in the first week and a half or something like that. Um and I really just I started eating at 3000 calories. That's where I started the diet. So I went mm. 3000 calories for probably like 3 or 4 weeks mm-hmm. and that took me from 205 to 195. Mm-hmm. And then uh, at 195, things got a little harder because the scale stopped moving at 3,000 calories. So I dropped it down to 2,700, and it started moving again for another couple weeks. And I think I got down to like 193, 192 and a half, something like that. But I was starting to get hungry, like, a, like not not like food focused hungry, but to the point where you know I wanted bigger portions of what I was eating. Yeah. Um. So I sort of auto-regulated refeed days. Mm. Uh, at first, it would just be one refeed day every week or so. And then I got down to, you know, 190, 189, something like that. And the calories dropped down to like 2,400, 2,500. And then I instituted a, a second refeed day most weeks. Um, sometimes I would do them back to back. And sometimes I would have them separated out by a few days. Really just depend depended how much... I felt satiated from one refeed day. And if I woke up the next day and I was still really hungry, then I would kind of honor that and give myself another refeed day, um, with the intention of going, you know, another five days without a refeed after that. Um, so that process staying around 2,400 calories and following that, that refeed schedule, um got me down basically to to 185 and I didn't have to do any cardio I walked it was summertime at the time so I did increase my steps um as the calories went down I did probably increase from maybe a 10 to 12k average up to a 14 to 16k average um so just a small amount maybe like the difference of 100 calories a day or something like that um and then got down to 185 and felt great so uh yeah that's that's the story man
0: that's yeah uh, it's interesting so let, let's dig into the refeed stuff for a second just because like there was a lot of talk on my channel on that recently so so if i followed correctly you stopped losing weight at uh, 2700 right and then you dropped it down to like 24 25 and did the refeeds
1: So first it was 3000 for the first month or so, and then 3000 stopped working. And then I went down to 2700 and still didn't really have the refeeds. Maybe like I had one throughout like a month or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the refeeds more came in when I dropped down to like 24, 2500, and then I would do the one refeed or two refeeds kind of just auto-regulated.
0: Right. Okay. And then uh, like how big were those refeeds roughly? I'd say
1: about 500 calories. But if I found myself really hungry, I wasn't scared to like eat a little more and then have a steeper deficit one of the other days.
0: Uh-huh. Okay, gotcha. So like your average calories during the week like didn't get bumped up by by that much from them?
1: I would say 1,000 to 1,200 maybe for the
0: week, yeah. Okay. Okay, gotcha. All right, interesting. Um, so so let, let's talk a bit about... Um, What you mentioned about you wanting to shift that uh, kind of undulation between you know one ninety five to two oh five to like one eighty five to one ninety five. So so how do you feel in that leaner state? So like a lot of the things that people talk about, like the the edit hunger, whatever more lethargy. You don't you don't feel any of those things?
1: No, I mean I think the hunger is there. Like I mean it's it's there, but it's not like overwhelming there. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's really kind of the way to say it. So I, I, my whole life from 2012, until I started that diet, I basically did intermittent fasting. So eight years of intermittent fasting, where I pretty much ate for six hours a day. And I would just have these like two really big meals um, in that window. And most of that was was like lifestyle based, like I just felt I worked better in the mornings uh, in front of the computer programming and talking to clients and stuff. When I was fasted, um, I liked the way that the black coffee hit me when I didn't have food in my belly and um, I didn't really find myself hungry. So I know that this is like something that can be shifted. If I were to start eating in the morning, then my body would adapt to this and then I would begin to crave food in the morning. But I had gone so many years of not eating until 1 p.m., 2 p.m., something like that. That that was just the way that it was. And I never even thought about food, got hungry or anything like that. So I think as I entered into this diet, a lot of those kind of habits were still prevalent in, in my life. So I was working out twice a day. I did the AM PM thing, Hmm. um, but they were short sessions, you know, like 40 minute sessions twice a day instead of one hour and a half long session. Mm -hmm. And so I began eating early. I didn't do all that fasted. But I only had liquid food up until the time that I would usually eat when I was intermittent fasting. So I would have like a protein carb mix at 8 a.m. and then work out. And then I'd have another protein carb mix at, you know, 10 a.m. And then I'd have, I'd sip on another one during the workout. So literally between 8 a.m. and 1 p.m., I had three different protein carb mix shakes. And then once the second workout was over at like 2 p.m., I would eat. Um, so the hunger wasn't there. The hunger really isn't ever there until after dinner. Like I it's, it's weird. I, I don't know if that's like super lucky on my part or it's an, an individual hormonal thing. Um, but I don't really find myself like ravenously hungry until I finish dinner. And then I calm down and I've kind of like, you know, like the day is over, like now I can relax and I'm in front of the TV or whatever. And then suddenly like fucking everything man. I just want to eat the whole world. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that that's the thing that I find myself battling and that's there whether I'm at 205 195 or 185 like I just have this ravenous hunger at night and the big difference is whether I honor that and I get or I give into it which I can do at 205
0: or at 185 I can't. Hey guys, just a brief interruption, I want to let you know that round two of my group coaching service has now opened up in this coaching system, you will get a customized training and diet setup tailored for your needs, detailed guidance on training progression and diet management, and you will be able to interact with me and other members of the group, both in written format and on calls during the week. And for a limited time now you can hop on a call with me and we can talk over your goals and see if you are a good fit for this so if this sounds interesting to you then check the link in the video or show description below and you can book a call with me but if you would rather just send an email you can also do that also check out the show description for that all right that's it let's continue with the show yeah yeah i mean i think um i think a lot of people can relate to that i can to some extent as well i think a lot of that is once again like we can program that to some extent, like our body will adapt to whatever we regularly do. Um, interestingly, I did intermittent fasting for a very long time, like basically for like four years. And I could tolerate it, of course, like I, I was making it work. But um, now looking back, when I actually switched over to having breakfast, I like my energy levels were just so much more stable. My hunger was so much better controlled. Like, like I personally felt like intermittent fasting just kind of sent me on this, uh, just increased food focus for the rest of the day, which, which again is like, that's super individual. I know a lot of people have the opposite experience. If they can just let go of that meal in the morning where they're not hungry, then, then it's all good. And then like, interestingly, if I'm, if I'm well fed during the day, like that, ravenous evening hunger for me is just not there but yeah like th- this is kind of like one of those age old strategies like honor your natural kind of biorhythms and hunger rhythms and and work with them so uh, you have a certain like it's almost like a glass each time of the day you have a certain amount of appetite like a glass and you have to fill that up and if you try to like go against that a lot then it will kind of hit back at a different time of the day so probably for you uh, that is the right strategy um, so, so yeah, like your hunger will be to some extent higher, uh, probably as you're leaner, um, or maybe you don't notice the difference as much. So like you just want to eat everything from the fridge at night and that's just mm-hmm. the same, whether you're two or five or but did you, did you find that you had to make any kind of like food choice, um, like food selection difference, differences or, or anything like that to like just manage that hunger better generally? Yeah, for sure. That's a really good question.
1: And um, I think ultimately portion size is probably the biggest thing that, that goes into that pot um, in that dinner is is often the biggest meal of the day, right? Uh, in America. So where, when I'm 205, my dinner might be 10 ounces of, of ground beef, uh, inside a burger bun. Maybe I do it at a burger bun. I have pieces of cheese on each burger and I have like the sides probably the same, but I have more, uh, more potatoes, more, more kind of baked potatoes. Maybe I put cheese on the potatoes and then, um, the smaller portion of veggies. And this would be like, you know, at two Oh five or 200 or one ninety five or something like that. When I'm down at that 185 mark, I I very much decrease portion size by taking away some of the lower quality food. So maybe that, that beef goes from 10 ounces to eight ounces. So it's just a very small, small change in the amount of beef I'm eating. Maybe I have half of a burger bun instead of a full burger bun and either one piece of cheese or no cheese. And then the potatoes definitely, definitely will not have cheese on them. Uh, Mm. So that's, that's one thing that changes. And then I usually increase the size of the vegetable portion. In fact, I may even like snack on vegetables as I'm preparing dinner, which is something that like I never do when I'm not cutting. (laughs) Um, This is the one habit that like, I just find myself eating like bags of snap peas. Like I just buy them and whenever I'm hungry, I just go to the fridge and start opening the snap peas and, and eating them. So an excessive number of snap peas, but, um, definitely snacking on vegetables is probably the main thing, uh, that I do between meals. And then I also tend to just stop snacking in general, unless it's on vegetables. So I, um, because, you know, I, I do my liquid feedings throughout the earlier part of the day, once the afternoon hits and I have that first meal, it satiates me temporarily. But like you said, the hunger is going to catch up with you eventually. So, you know, you have that first meal and then two hours later, I'm like back in the cabinet trying to find food again. Mm -hmm. When I'm down at 185, I don't do that. Or I make sure that the snack is like a vegetable. Um, But at 205, I go into the cabinet and it's like pita chips with cheese on them or like um, just, I, I, it's hard, it's hard to, to, think exactly off the top of my head, but I'll eat things that are higher carb, like off bagels. Bagels is a great one. Like I'll go into the cabinet and grab a bagel and put some cream cheese on it. And that's something I also don't really do when dieting. So taking that kind of mid afternoon, feeding out decreasing, decreasing portion sizes, and then
0: avoiding, you know, eating later at night too. Um, and so you mentioned that you've been tracking for like 14 years, like all these like snacks and everything you track all of those down as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I got to a point, even during this cut that took me from two Oh five to one eighty five. I didn't like weigh my snacks. Like I, I wouldn't have like, if the, if the package said that seven pita chips was a serving and I had five pita chips, then I would just like estimate it based off of what seven pita chips is. Um, but yeah, I tracked everything. Like, even if, you know, I gave my toddler, uh, a bagel with cream cheese and I was like, I'm hungry. I'm going to have one bite of it. I would even write down like bite of bagel and cream cheese and it would be like 10 carbs and two grams of fat or something like that.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so like my, my other question on tracking would be, do you notice, uh, like, is there a big drop in your like maintenance calories from, say, 205 to 190 or even 185 that you noticed? Yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah. So I I think that to maintain
1: 185, I'm going to have to have the weekly average be under 21,000. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think I'd be able to maintain uh, much less than, on, on much more than that so uh, like if 3, I'm at 000. 185. Yeah, 3,000 a day at 185. Mm-hmm. Um, but at 205? I mean I literally cannot track calories and I can mostly eat whatever I want and not even think about it. Like I can have french fries with my burgers, I can have like a brownie after dinner and 205 it just like stays like I can't gain weight. It's just mm-hmm. hard. And and you know what average calories
0: you would have to eat? It's probably like between 3600 and 4000. Right. Okay. Well, all right, let's let's do some quick math on that actually. Just like um so like 205 So like, let's, let's say it's Mm -hmm. 3,500 divided by two or five. So that's 17 calories per pound. And then uh, 3,000 divided by 185. Eh, Actually, it's not a huge difference. It's 16.2. So um, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah I mean to some extent like you will have to drop your calories just because your your body is smaller unless you're making up for it with with a bunch of activity but but actually like one thing that you mentioned that I really like is is exactly what I tend to recommend to clients when they have the struggle of um, how do I transition from a cut to maintenance or, or lean gaining and my best recommendation always is to keep your diet structure as much as possible the same and even if you're going through pretty large fluctuations in body weight over time keep the base structure the same and just add things to it so instead of uh, going from like mainly eating veggies and whatever steak and things like that to like only eating starches and grains and whatever fatty meat like keep the base structure the same and just add things to it so like you said i don't know like it's still veggies and ground beef and whatever a bun But now you're adding cheese to it and you're just adding less of the cheese to it or taking it away completely when you're when you're at that leaner physique. So I actually really like that. Um, So uh, yeah, like anything else? So like the hunger is pretty well controlled. Um, Yeah, I don't know if you want to elaborate on that a bit more, like just the feeling of being lighter. Uh, and liking it, like, can you tell me a bit, bit about that? So you mentioned that, like, walking around feels easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, any other, like benefit that you notice?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, I think the feeling of being lighter, it really applies to, to kind of all things in life, right? So like, I have a three year old and a one year old. And I remember specifically at at 205 body weight, I'd be laying on the ground and we'd be playing downstairs, building a train set or some other crap that we do together. And, you know, he would yell at me from across the room and be like, dad, I need your help over here or something. And I'd come up with some excuse as to why I couldn't help him. Like, oh no, I have some like work to do on my phone or, you know, whatever else it is. Mm -hmm. And then as I began losing weight, like I found myself just like much more apt to jump at the opportunity to get up and move, um, mm. which is really kind of the antithesis of what I expected to happen. Like based on yeah. all the horror stories that I hear on these podcasts and read about of people getting lean, it's like, oh, I get lean and then I don't wanna move. My knee goes down and like all these negative ramifications occur as a cascade of events that that make you have to like actually make sure you're tracking your knee and that you're going out of your way to get extra knee and all these things. And for me, it was like just a more desirable thing to do.
0: Yeah. And and did, did you ever experience that like temporarily as you were getting down there? Like that, like not maybe to the extent of what these horror stories are saying, but like to some extent that you're like, man, I'm just like not motivated to move around at all.
1: I think it was more manifested in my desire to do hard sets in the gym, specifically with like big compound movements. Hmm. Um, so I didn't actually notice like really tangible decreases in performance in the gym. Um, like, you know, there'd be a few movements that that would suffer. Like it was a little bit harder to squat, like the bar felt heavier on my back. So I swapped that out and did more, um, kind of back supported squatting movements. Um, and then for whatever reason, chest pressing, um, like compound chest pressing, when I get leaner, it it just, it just doesn't feel as strong for me. Um, it could just Mm -hmm. be that the body's getting smaller. It's a longer range of motion. Um, but even so like on both of those movements, I pretty much maintained and then I was able to increase, you know, a rep here or rep there or increase, increase like the quality of the movement week to week, um, all the way up until the end of the diet on most of the like smaller joint movements. Um, but really it was like a motivation piece. And, uh, as I was going through this at the time, I was coached my training by, uh, Brian minor Mm, and I didn't have him do my nutrition, um, just because I kind of wanted the, I wanted to figure it out myself. Like I, I'd, I'd been listening to so many podcasts and reading so much. And I had that, you know, terrible diet in 2015 that left me like scared of dieting. So I really wanted to do it on my own. So when I approached him, I asked if he would just kind of, you know, help me work through the the training process. And he was, he was down with that. So one of the things that I would always talk to him about on our check-in forms each week was that my motivation was suffering. Like that always seemed to be a constant theme. Like every fourth or fifth week, I was like, Hey dude, like, I really, I really think I need to deload. Like, I don't really want to go to the gym right now. These double day sessions are really killing me. And at one point I even tried to like put them back into one session, but that was even worse Hmm. because like by the time I've, you know, squatted and done a stiff legged deadlift. Like the last thing I want to do is leg extension and leg curl. So mm-hmm. he, we, we had that split up where it'd be like compounds in the AM and, and isolations in the PM. Um, but it was tough, man. I would say the motivation in the gym was definitely the thing that I noticed suffering the most, uh, as opposed to like the desire to move throughout the day.
0: Yeah. Yeah, actually, uh, like an interesting experience that I haven't actually discussed it with a couple of clients or one in particular that I can think of um, who went through this phase of, he was very lean, like probably like 10% body fat or so, which like a legitimate 10% body fat, which is like very lean for a man. Um, well, and for a female, it's pretty much like <laughs> me- meaning death. So, um, and and then he gained some weight because he was just not feeling well. I actually had an Instagram post about him uh, that he increased his testosterone a lot by gaining some mm-hmm. weight. You may have seen it. And um, he said that like, he's feeling much better. Everything is just way better like sex drive sense of humor like appetite doesn't have the constant food focus but the one thing that he didn't like about being heavier is that he was not as motivated to train like just that whole process of you know like going through the workout like normally he would look forward to that and it would be one of the favorite parts of his day and now it was kind of like yeah i I get it done but it's, it's not as much fun and i could actually totally relate to that because like there is like when you're leaner and everything is more vascular and the definitions come out better. And even the process of, you know, changing your t-shirt in the changing room, like that's like, Oh, wow, I look good. And it kind of gets taken away when you're heavier. So do do you have the same thing?
1: Yeah. You know, you just made me really miss going to a gym uh, Uh because I've been training in my basement now since, uh, since March. So um, I think given that I train in the basement, it isn't quite the exact same situation. Like I remember going to the gym prior to, to COVID and really you're right. Like being excited to be like, okay, I'm getting leaner. Like I can't wait to look in that mirror, that like special mirror that I always love, you know? Right. Um, or like to see how my arm looks as I'm doing this bicep curl or, or something along those lines. Um, but training in the gym by myself, it, uh, it doesn't have quite the same impact. So then I end up finding myself, you know, using Instagram almost as like a motivation source for myself. So mm. um I post all my workouts for the most part on on my story each day and I try to add like some value and context and like you know why why I'm doing this movement, how I'm performing it, execution points, whatever. Whatever kind of knowledge I can drop to help people um but that's kind of the thing that I look to for motivation now. And it's funny because I never saw myself as this type of person in the past. But in the last few months, I really do like look forward to getting DMs from people being like, dude, your arms are massive (laughs) or like Mm -hmm. some other compliment of some sort, because it's kind of like a driving motivation for me now working out by myself in this like odd time that we're in. Um, And then also, you know, to your point, I do find myself like when I'm leaner, I record more videos of myself because I just want to like see the way that I look in different situations or I'll finish a a set of hack squats and I'll set the camera up so that I can like flex my legs and see what they look like pumped up. And those are the things that like when you're sitting 15 pounds heavier and you don't have the same separation in your legs, like you're not going to set your phone up and go flex in front of the phone. Right. So, um, yeah, it's, I mean, I, I totally get the motivation side of being leaner. Um, but I think it's definitely much more applicable in like a commercial gym setting.
0: Yeah. It's really weird how, are you good on time by the way? Cause, um, we can, we we can Mm -hmm. wrap up whenever you uh, need to, but, uh, I won't try to keep you up for, for too long, but, um, but it's really weird how, like what? At least for me, like what state I'm in in terms of body composition, like really influences my general views on on life uh, almost. And I have to be mindful of not letting that, you know, getting to an extreme level. So, for example, just as an example, uh, I don't know if you've heard that Stronger by Science podcast episode where they were discussing the whole P ratio idea and uh, how that might be off, and. Um, Menno Hanselmans just today, like it just arrived in my, my uh, inbox, just wrote an article basically cr- critiquing their, their critique. So how and outlined how he still believes that there is a relationship between leanness and efficient muscle building, and it might still be worth it to keep yourself on the leaner side, or at least not let yourself get overweight. And uh, now that I'm fairly lean myself, and I'm in the process of getting even leaner, I looked at his article and I was like, cool, I actually like that. Like, uh, th- this is this is a message that resonates with me right now. Like, I want that to be the, the case almost. Uh, whereas maybe if I was, I don't know, like, I don't know, five to ten kilos heavier, I would be almost pissed. Like, oh, man, come on, just let it go. It doesn't matter how lean you are for muscle building. So I, just just a random tidbit. I don't know if you can relate to that. Yeah,
1: totally. I actually really don't know where I stand on the P ratio thing. I mean, I obviously am, am not a scientist, so I let Trexler and those guys tell me what I should think. Um, sure. But, uh, but no, I mean, I, it's tough because the whole dirty bulk thing I think is is also an interesting discussion point just because, and I've heard the Stronger by Science guys talk about this too, where like no science has ever shown that like you have to do a dirty bulk or you have to like get excessively fat to gain muscle. And, you know, there's all these cascade of negative consequences that can occur and then you have to cut the weight off and, and all these things. And then they made the point where they're like, yeah, but everyone that's big has done some sort of kind of like excessive bulk at some point in their life. Right. Um, And so I don't know how that plays into the P ratio thing, but when I uh, graduated high school, I was the same height I am now. And I was 170, 169 pounds, something like that. And I'd been lifting for three and a half or four years. But most of that time that I was lifting, I was playing basketball competitively. So we had practice 90 to 120 minutes, six times a week. And then I was also in this the state of the fitness industry at the time was really on the like six meals a day. Like every meal is evenly split between protein and carbs, low fat. Like I would say in general, the whole six meals a day thing almost caused me to under eat because there was like this fear that if I ate too much, that it would just turn to fat. And that, you know, you had to do these like really broken down six meals a day with 30 grams of protein in each meal or something like that. Um, And everything I had was rice or potatoes or you know, whole wheat bread or something like that. So I think I, I sold myself short in high school. Like I almost feel that I missed out on some gains that I could have gotten earlier in my life that eventually just got manifested when I went to college. Because what happened when I went to college is I ate as much as I possibly could. And I gained 30 pounds in like four or five months. So it took me from like 170 pounds to 200 pounds, literally in the first semester of college, and no, it wasn't all quality weight, but I'll hundred percent say that I could barely bench 135 for reps graduating high school. And within four or five months in college of eating like a madman, I benched 225 for reps. And at the time that was like some man shit. Like you're putting 225 on the bar. You're a boss. And, um, and that happened when I got up to 200 pounds and So not saying that everybody has to do that, of course, but for me, that's what it took for me to actually realize some gains. Like I've been working out for three and a half years and I could barely bench press 135, you know? I mean, to be fair, I wasn't really like bench pressing a lot. I did mostly dumbbell work, but like even what the 65s or the 70s were heavy for me um, at that point. And by the time I finished that, that 30 pound gain, I was throwing up like the 90s, the same way I was throwing up the 65s or the 70s. So um, all relatively, you know, there is definitely, definitely something to just putting weight on and mass moves mass, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like you, it's it's something that I'm kind of moving back and forth on. And um, I talked a lot about this on the channel and Dave and I did a podcast on Mike Murray's um, podcast that you appeared on as well. And so like on the one hand, kind of the... Um, the more conservative side of me says, okay, look, like you can go through this dirty bulk and you might make some good gains. And, um, you know, you look back at it and say that was worth it. And we definitely see a lot of case studies for that. But on the other hand, I always got to wonder you know, what would have happened if the person just kept on gaining much more slowly for maybe much longer? And then that like, would that have resulted in the same outcome? Um, And then if I look at the case study of someone like Eric Helms, who, you know, did the seven year off season and got up to 100 kilos, which for him is, you know, the point, so like 220 pounds. He's not uh, fat, but he's also definitely not lean at that point. So, but he made some gains, made a lot of good strength gains. And then the question is, well, could you have done the same thing if you didn't go up to 100 kilos? So, was it the 100 kilos or was it just the fact that you took, you know, seven years off with no significant like calorie deficit periods and you just trained consistently? But on the other hand, I mean, there are some like even some mechanistic arguments for why dirty bulking might work. Like when you're fatter, you can actually hold more lean body mass. So maybe pushing your body fat and body weight up to a higher point that actually allows you to tap into some gains that you just couldn't tap into when you were leaner. So maybe it is actually necessary to get a little bit fatter. And I've definitely also went through that. Like as an early intermediate kind of end of my novice stages, I was stuck at like, so what is it in pounds, like 170, maybe like 180 pound bench press for like five reps or so. And then I did this dirty bulk and really quickly I went up to like um, 200 pounds or 90 kilos for sets of five. And as I dieted back down, I definitely lost some of that strength gain, but it never be- went back to where it was before. So it's like, uh, I don't know, I'm I'm kind of back and forth on that. So probably like the best recommendation there is to shoot something reasonable like don't get obese like super super fat like keep yourself at a reasonable range but probably you shouldn't be too obsessed over staying super lean so
1: so in the eric helms example didn't he get all the way up there had that like seven year off season and then came back down and only stood on stage like five pounds heavier than he was or something like that
0: yeah yeah but i mean five pounds heavier for sure yeah at at his training age right like he's, he's been lifting for like 13 years at that point
1: right but you would think i guess that if he took the slow route you would be like okay like maybe he can get like eight tenths of a pound every year for seven years and it gets him to the same
0: spot yeah yeah basically
1: um so my theory is and i have no scientific backing for this but my theory is that if you're going to do a a dirty bulk type thing doing it in the first few years, as you're like cementing the initial kind of newbie, early, intermediate gains, seems to me to be the best time to do it um, because you're going to be in like a state of flourishing, anyways. And I, I get the other side of that argument, which is, well, you're going to flourish anyways, so why are you going to go get fat and flourish mm-hmm. when you can just flourish with the lean bulk? But you know, in my case and with other people that that I've talked to, it does seem that those that did it earlier on ended up having better success with it than those that did it later on.
0: Yeah. 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 And like we can never fully, uh, maybe we talked about this on your podcast as well, but we can never really fully discount the possibility that there is some mechanism that we just don't understand yet. So like who maybe even age factors into it to some extent, like who knows, Mm -hmm. like maybe something that you do in your like early twenties or late teens is just not going to work as well when you're, I don't know, 40 and not because of, um, like your muscle building machinery is just not working any well or any, any, uh, what did I say? So it's not because your muscle building machinery is any worse. It's just because maybe you can take advantage of some hormonal impacts of that la- large calorie surplus when you're younger. Um, maybe some structural adaptations happen to your, uh, to your connective tissue, even at heavier body weights. So, Um, and then the same thing can be applied to training like uh, is it good to train heavier at times like mechanistically, it would seem like not like, you know, like hypertrophy rep range could be as high as like 30 reps, as long as the effort level is there. Mm -hmm. But who knows, maybe something is actually happening to the connective tissue. So uh, lots of things. But but anyway, one last thing I wanted to ask you about is, um, you had an Instagram post about this, and you sent this to me and Dave as well, where you have been lifting, I think, at that point for like, quite a long time. And um, over so I think the the two picture had pictures had like 14 years uh, separating them. Yep. And you were like maybe seven. I mean, I, I kind of just did the math. Like your body weight was the same and like 186 on both. And on one, maybe you're like what, 13, 14% body fat, like conservatively. And the on the other one you're like maybe nine, 10, something like that. Um, so could you speak a little bit about that? Cause like, even on the before picture, you were not like a newbie. You've been training for quite a long time. So yeah. How, how did that go?
1: <laughs> yeah. So the interesting thing about that before picture is that at the time, that was like my milkshake picture. That was the one where I was like, "That is the best that I've ever looked." Right there, like I need to make this my profile picture, right? So, like in 2006 or seven in college, that became my profile picture, and I was like, "I have abs, and I have delts, and I have pecs, and like check me out," you know. So um, that was that was like the pie in the sky look for me at that time. Um, I was extremely hungover in that picture and really flat. So I think that uh, you know I, I weighed what I did in that picture, but I don't think that my normal, uh, look looked anything like that. Like I definitely was very depleted and dehydrated, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so then you compare like, like, I kind of wish I had a picture from those days where I wasn't in like my perfect looking state or my, my leanest state or whatever. And then to compare it because, um, I would agree that in that picture, I do look somewhere between like, you know, 13 to 15% body fat, but I think that I probably walked around a little bit higher than that, um, normally just because that picture made me look a certain way. Um, yeah, so that picture was 2006, uh, spring break in college. We went to the mountains to go skiing and then, uh, That was in the middle of like kind of some heavy drinking time in my life, not to the point where I like ever stopped doing fitness. Like I always made sure to get my workouts in, but I was definitely getting drunk two to three times a week. And, um, and so it wasn't really even until I started the CrossFit gym in 2010 that I stopped drinking as much. Um, I probably cut it down to about once a week in 2010 and then I stopped drinking almost completely, probably five years ago. Like I'll have a drink once or twice a month maybe, but I haven't been drunk in a couple of years. Um, And then I'll even say that, you know, through the years of CrossFit, I got a lot stronger. Um, Like we did a lot of snatching and clean and jerks and all the different variations of crazy, like muscle ups and pull-ups and handstand push-ups and all these things that like cause hypertrophy but they're done in such like a metabolite manner and there's really no structure to it. There's no progression. Um, so like if I have 30 chest to bar pull-ups one day, like I could come back three days later and the workout has 60 of them or 90 of them or whatever, like it's just so random Mm -hmm. that it's hard to know if I ever even put muscle on during that time or if I was just getting better at skills. Mm -hmm. Um, because it really is like you have to practice these movements so often to become efficient at them um, that it's a little bit detrimental to the process of recovery. Like every CrossFitter that I know is under recovered. Um, so then, you know, coming out of CrossFit and really just jumping headfirst into this evidence-based space, the first people that I really kind of found to influence me in 2016, 17 were, uh, like RP, Dr. Mike, and then subsequently Revive Stronger. Um, so my first year back into training, I did the whole like set progression thing, working up in sets, then deloading and, and et cetera, et cetera. And, um, about a year into that. And I just like, I didn't want to do it anymore. Like it was, I, I got good results from it, but I think practically like doubling or tripling your workout time over a four week period just was so ridiculous to me that I just like, I couldn't do it. I couldn't go to the gym and do six sets of pull-ups and six sets of bench press and whatever else was required for that day. Um, So finding that more moderate route and kind of, you know, following a similar path to the way that like you took things and the way that like Brian Miner looks at things and Eric Helms and those guys, um, I think that the last year plus of training has been really, really productive for me and has allowed, you know, those weekly assessments of progression and preparedness to to really be seen you know it's like in the set progression model you don't really know if you're even doing it right until you get back to the same microcycle in the next mesocycle right and that always fucked with me like i never really was a huge fan of just being like okay i'll work a little closer to failure and i'll add a set and just presume that that's working for me and now you know being able to just sustain what is essentially like a 1 to 2 rir on most movements and letting progression come to me a little bit more using more of kind of that dynamic double progression model that, that, uh, Brian Miner uses is, uh, has been really great for me. And I think that, you know, a testament to that is even just looking at what has happened to my legs in the last year. Like I posted a picture on Instagram the other day of here are my legs pre-quarantine and then here are my legs like currently. And, it's, it's like night and day different. I mean, it's an angle as well. You, the angle's kind of odd, but, but either way, you can definitely tell that like the adductors are bigger and the vastus lateralis is bigger. Um, and I think a lot of that is down to just, you know, putting in the work and doing the thing and every week just trying to, to match that one to two RIR and let the progression come to me more than trying to force the progression.
0: Right. So, um, so if, if you're looking at your overall, um, like training journey and what, it like if you're looking at the things most of the things that got got you where you are today um like what type of training philosophy was like the most dominant so i know you did a lot of things like crossfit um whatever like did a bunch of snatching just like random pull-ups here and there now you're doing this you did the rp method <laughs> like what would you say was like the most productive um throughout the oh well, not not the most productive but like if you have to point to one thing, like, well, this is what I've done the long for the longest. And I already had the foundation of my physique by then. So like, what, what do you think got, got you where you are?
1: So the thing that really took me through, like when I entered college and I gained those 30 pounds and my strength skyrocketed, that was when I began following the max OT program. And I know I've heard you and Dave talk about this before, at least Dave has talked about it. Um, yeah. Remind me a bit. So max OT is basically every exercise is four to six reps, um, except like isolations, they would go like six to eight reps, but it's still like really low for an isolation movement. It was a bro split. Um, so it would be like chest Monday, back Tuesday, legs, Wednesday, Thursday, shoulders, Friday, arms, rest, Saturday, Sunday. Um, mm-hmm. and it was six to nine sets per muscle group. So it was pretty low volume, but every set was like to absolute failure. Like it's called max OT, which is overload overload threshold, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, so they essentially were like, no matter what you have to get another rep or add weight to the bar every single week, that was Mm -hmm. just like the non-negotiable. And so I think what that did was it, it just taught me to work hard. Um, it taught me to know where failure is. It taught me to know how my form compromises if I'm going past failure. And that is like something along the lines of, you know, you're doing a shoulder press and you kind of like turn your body to the side to like get one arm up and then the other arm presses up, you know, and you kind of lock out. So like things like that in max OT, I was doing that because it was like, I have to get another rep no matter what. Um, So while I don't think that that's like, that wouldn't, that wouldn't work for me right now, but that process of training super fucking hard and going to failure on everything and lifting heavy weight. It, I did that for years, like probably two years in college. And those were the, by far the best gains that I ever got. I don't know that I can attribute that program for a full success because, you know, I did start eating. I did finally hit full fledged puberty in college, like maybe end of high school, early college. Um, so there was like a cascade of things happening all at the same time. Um, But that program was definitely one piece of it. Um, So I think like hypertrophy wise, that's where I made the majority of my gains. But with that said, I don't think that I would have made the same gains over the last like two or three years coming out of CrossFit that I have made if I hadn't taken the approach more of like what I'm doing now with this kind of like holding some RIR back, focusing on the quality of movement and execution of movement. And then even going into things like the mind muscle connection, which in max OT, there was no such thing as mind muscle connection because it was just move the weight. Right. Yeah. Um, but now it's like, I'm learning the little nuance of movement, like how you can dumbbell bench press and grip the inside of the dumbbell to tell the chest to, to help you out a little bit more, or, you know, doing a bicep curl and squeezing through the pinky side so that the, the forearm doesn't come in as much or bending the wrist back when doing the bicep curl, um, turning the wrist down when doing lateral raises or even doing a cuff lateral raise, Um, things that just allow me to connect better with the muscle and then to just put in the time and energy and mental focus to execute movements in a way that isn't just a matter of moving from point A to point B, but it's ensuring that the muscle that you're targeting is doing the work to get there.
0: Yeah, it's, um, I, I think that type of training, like the max OT, but there are lots of others like that out there, which are like very hard, moderate volume or on the lower volume end, and uh, just focus on progression at all costs. I think it's kind of like the dreamer bulk in some sense that um, it may not be like the, you know, scientifically speaking, the most optimal way to maximize hypertrophy. But I think it's beneficial for most people to go through that at least once, because it teaches you a lot of things for a lifetime, basically. If anything, it will teach you to work really hard and what is it like what does it really feel like to push yourself and also i think it just saves people from a lot of bullshit because i think mm-hmm. uh, a lot of younger guys now coming up following like the the evidence based circles and you know i'm the biggest fan of the evidence based you know practice and and methodology but i think uh, there is it can easily be interpreted in a way where people are just like trying to skip the the hard work, quote unquote, and are just like fucking around with a bunch of nonsense. Like, um, I actually want to do a meme on this on Instagram, like uh, different for like how, what, what failure training actually means. And then there will be like the HIT failure training and that will be like, like, <laughs> like that. And then evidence-based, evidence-based failure training and that will be like, <laughs> right. I'm done. That's five or IR. That still counts. Yeah. Um, which which will be a little bit facetious, but uh, will be fun. Uh, so yeah, I don't know if you have anything to add to that random thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think that, you know, one thing that, that always happens to me is I get people that are in their first couple of years of training that DM me and they're like, why am I not getting results, blah, blah, blah. And they'll like almost send me their program or, or they'll at least like, you know, verbally be like, this is kind of what I'm doing on this day and this day and this day. And one of the main things that I always see is like people that are way too early in their journey, spending way too much time on isolation movements. Um, and I think that, you know, I actually talked to Paul Carter about this uh, briefly over DM one day. I tagged him in a post where I was basically like, or in a story where I was basically like, you know, thanks to Paul Carter for getting me focused on compound movements in the early stages of my training or something. And he wrote me back and was like, yeah, I actually don't really like believe that that's the most optimal way anymore. And we had kind of a big back and forth. Like he made this analogy of there being two twins and you know, the one twin, like the goal is to get to 20 pounds of muscle as quickly as possible. And the one twin um, does only compound movements like squats, deadlifts, uh, bench press, dip, pull up, row, that sort of thing. And then the other twin does, you know, the more N1 Kasim paul Carter approach where, you know, everything is like super targeted on the musculature and you lock your body into like a machine. So you're hack squatting or you're doing some sort of like back supported squat. There's less um, of a learning curve. And so his argument was, the twin that does the thing with the less learning curve is going to get to 20 pounds of muscle faster because they're not going to have to go through the neural adaptation process of like learning to squat and learning to deadlift and all these things. And to his point, like he might be a hundred percent, right. Um, if you knew right off the bat on day one, that, the objective was I want 20 pounds of muscle and I want hypertrophy to be my baby, then that's my ball game, then yeah, sure. But I mean, I believe that there's a lot of kind of, of these uh, other benefits to the compound movements like teaching you to work hard. Not that you can't work hard doing like a one-arm lat pull down or a hack squat or something like that, but the mental fortitude that goes into getting yourself under a bar and back squatting when you first start or learning how to brace your midline um, during a deadlift and picking movements that give you more bang for your buck as far as time, um, and not having to pick three movements to work one muscle group when you can just work, you know, that muscle group through one movement and put more of your time and energy into that. So, you know, I see both sides of this coin, but most of the people that are telling me that they're not getting the results they want are doing a bunch of these like fluff exercises. And most of the people that I've communicated with anecdotally that have gotten good results from training did spend a number of years working on those big basic movements before kind of adding in the fluff stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is something that Dave likes to talk about a lot, um, that people forget what has gotten them where they are now versus what do they have to do now to keep improving or what works now just in general so yeah i think if for someone who had that who has that foundation and is now just looking to like fine-tune things like yeah like those like super amazing like mind muscle connection type stuff like casim has those like amazing like let pull down variations and whatever yeah that's great but like maybe when you're starting out just like learning to do like heavy weighted chin-ups with like a bunch of weight hanging off your waist like maybe that will have a better bigger benefit. So yeah, definitely well said. Uh, all right, man. So I have actually a, a client call starting in like 10 minutes, so we should probably wrap up and I kept you up for long enough. Um, so yeah, man, thanks so much. Uh, this was an awesome discussion. So, um, yeah, just let people know where they can find you, uh, anything you'd like to plug, um, anything like that.
1: Yeah, for sure. Thanks again for having me, man. I really appreciate it. And, yeah. uh, You guys can find me at Brian Borstein on Instagram. Um, You would also find me if you search for Evolved Training Systems, which is also my website. So check that out. And uh, yeah, follow along. Check my stories out. Give me some encouragement. Tell me my arms look big and all that good stuff so I can keep staying motivated.